Welcome to Live and Learn Podcast Season 4. In our four seasons, we hold cozy discussions on how we live and learn, accompany and encourage our community of growth mindsetters, how we respond to challenges of novel times with the help of soft skills, 21st century skills, both on a personal and a professional scale. We share our individual as well as science-based experience in a warm and supportive environment. What can four seasons of Live and Learn podcast mean to you? Whether you're jogging, commuting, or spending your leisure time, let a podcast be to your taste and music to your ears. Find yours. Here is ours. Hi there. I'm so happy to see you, to see your smile. I sometimes envy myself that I have the unique opportunity to see your smile every week. A rare opportunity, I would say, too, to see you and uh, to discuss really meaningful content. You know, when I look at uh, the uh, list of um, the topics we've been discussing over this time, I get really impressed myself. Being able to discuss this stuff, it's not just a small talk about something. Yeah, okay, so how is it going? Well, it is important how it is going. But then going deeper, it gets so much more interesting to to discuss this stuff. True, 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 true. So cutting the small talk out of it, carving it out. So our first favorite and first and foremost question, what did you learn this week? I don't even know. It seems like an ongoing process learning from every moment and learning every moment that uh, I can't even say what exactly I've learned this week, but uh, maybe learning how to... um, organize my time, how to balance better, following our previous topic about work-life balance, learning even better and more successfully, I hope, to organize my day and my week, to do really the things that um, I plan to do and I love doing. So I think this is the takeaway of the week that uh, I felt I could do what I wanted and what I planned. Does it give you confidence about your further time planning? Does it give you confidence about what you do? Do you believe in your time planning skills? Because it's it's kind of really important to think what you've learned and where you go further. It does give me confidence that uh, I can, <laughs> if uh, earlier I would say I can survive, Now I can just say I can only put those things on my schedule that I really plan to do, intend to do, and can do. And that does give me confidence. Mm -hmm. By prioritizing, by by making yourself first? Um, By not uh, adding more than I know I can do. Like I cannot do 10 lessons a day. It's just impossible. So I don't put 10 lessons a day. Knowing this, I think I'm repeating 
myself from the previous episodes, uh, not only putting myself first, but knowing myself good enough not to put extra tasks uh, that are not doable. Yeah, uh, putting lunch and dinner and sport and uh, a walk uh, as part of daily routine and weekly routine helps uh, feel good enough to be able to work as well and to work also being fully present and not thinking how hungry I am or how tired I am during the lesson because putting only the things that that are I feel and I know doable during this day allow to be completely present what about you what has your lesson of the week been I don't know why the first thing that came to my mind was not a lesson, but was more a memory that Facebook just uh, gave me as the post. You know, those memories. Two years ago, you wrote this. Five years ago, you wrote that. And it was a nice thing to read that a couple of years ago, I wrote, and I quote here, I was asked today about my teaching philosophy, and I quite liked the way I formulated it. Lifelong learning for leading by example. I now really vividly remember this moment. So I was uh, interviewed for the um, association, I don't know, some kind of the global association, and they were just asking me questions on my leadership, my style, and on uh, what do I understand by my own personal philosophy. And uh, most probably they were looking for maybe leaders in the uh, industry or, I don't know, those successful success that people are looking for. But when I, I am asked uh, so some kind of questions, maybe some lateral thinking comes in and uh, I hear myself formulating uh, the ideas that we normally do not or not necessarily we, we think about my, my philosophy every day. And here is lifelong learning for leading by example. So I just combine the two ideas that are kind of obvious here, but it's really interesting that the word continuous or lifelong uh, learning came here because that was specifically the interview when I formulated that I'm a professional teacher because I am a professional learner. In the first place i keep on thinking every day when i wake up or when i finish my classes in the evening what makes us keep on learning what makes us keep on you know striving for more signing up for the courses for the certifications for the i don't know ongoing professional development or just you know leisure study and thinking do we really want to be an example do you think that we're learning all the time to lead by example. What, what What's your attitude here? To me personally, I would say no. I, I'm driven by curiosity. I think everybody knows that already. And um, somehow it works. Um, for me, it works like that. I do not learn to lead by example. But in the end, I do lead by example. I believe uh, all uh, teachers who continuously develop uh, professionally and personally, and not only, 
in the end, uh, lead by personal example. But uh, for me, I would say, no, I'm driven by uh, curiosity. When uh, I took up a latent course, I never thought I would lead by example. And uh, some of my students would also want to take up another course. But uh, I do this because, or I did this because of my personal curiosity and interest. And uh, I was very much driven by that and uh, that uh, kept me interested and uh, helped me go on and uh, get into detail and want to learn even more. Then uh, some other things that came up and that uh, fired the light in uh, in my brain, making me want to do something else, to learn something else, to take up another course. It's just because I want to do that. Well, any other... uh, no other motivation can drive me so successfully and so well and uh, for such a long time. But then later when, uh, of course, I share with my students what I do and uh, what I'm interested in, uh, we also start this small talk in uh, the lesson, like, okay, so what's up? Well, I've done this and you, blah, blah. A couple of words in which, of course, something that is of my interest uh, now comes up and uh, students also feel this interest and ask uh, follow-up questions and want to know more. And then in their activities, not necessarily in similar things to which uh, I'm learning, but in their activities and the activities of their interest, they also are active learners and they do succeed. And I'm happy for them because they do that. So I would say not directly, but it is leading by example. Still, it's not the first motivation. How does it work for you? a good question because we keep on evolving every day and we keep on trying to see where we would fit where would our skill set evolve looking back it's always easy to connect the dots looking back it's easy to see that the decisions were made to build up one upon another trying to see where you are and to make a retrospective it's always easier to see what kind of unique skill set you have if you're doing some kind of a self-analysis and then to represent what may be your professional qualities, professional, unique selling opportunities, right? So the, the USPs for this specific professional or specialist. But it's really interesting to see how people in the beginning of their path I remember myself, we were just talking about, you know, myself being a student, how to see it in perspective, where would it evolve? And it's always a beautiful thing to have enough courage to follow your curiosity, follow the white rabbit, to follow where it may bring us and to embrace this perspective and to learn something, to to get the training, to get the skill, to get the course, to get the certification, or just fun and learn something like new language or drawing or, I don't know, driving or anything like that. And I think this, this very much is all about the mindset and learnability. So learning to learn was the first foundation 
in this brick wall, you know, that we're building year by year, semester by semester. So I think that it's really interesting how we we haven't talked about the learnability or learning to learn as a separate episode, but we more or less touching this fundamental prerequisite of lifelong learner. You know, I remember in one of our early episodes, we kind of touched this topic of when does it happen that we lose, or some of us, lose this curiosity and the ability to learn. Because we mentioned that in early child development, it never happens. Kids learn continuously, fall and uh, stand up and try again and are not uh, scared of failure, of uh, other things that as adults, uh, many people suffer from. And uh, we touched this topic a bit saying that we probably need to keep this uh, childish curiosity and the ability to follow our instinct to learn because it's inborn, yeah? And uh, now we're back on track with this topic of uh, how do we learn to learn? Yeah, that's a very good uh, phrasing of it. Or else uh, how not to forget how to learn. Or another thing, because learnability is a skill, how do we teach to learn? And how much of our teaching is the subject and how much of our teaching is teaching to learn effectively, teaching to learn using individual spectrum of what's available, what's necessary, what's a must, what is a nice to have. And actually, it was a point when I learned something last week. Uh, we were talking in one of the teachers' groups that learning styles is, is such a debatable topic. And uh, for example, in the English language teaching world, there has been you know, planners and keynote speakers who would debate whether the learning styles exist, are preferable, there should be the uh, materials created or shouldn't be materials created according to those visual, audio, kinesthetic and experiential or something like this learning style. The topic is so much debatable that, yeah, we can... We can Define the learning style, but the question is, if this is a preference, does it make your study more pleasurable or more effective? And for example, if you're an audio learner, uh, does it mean that you need to learn through the audio? Or does it mean that this is the skill that you've already perfected more than others, so you need to focus on uh, the other ways to learn? So yeah, there, there are a lot of the things that might be disputable. But what really brought my thinking is that one of the teachers said that, well, please don't call it preference, because not everybody can choose. The kids with autistic disorder cannot choose for, for some of them. It's a must that they have this or that learning style. And for this specific situation, it cannot be called a preference. So this is something that I learned to, you know, incorporate broader spectrum when we talk about such things and never talk about anything categorically, I think. 
this is something that I learned recently about learning styles. I've uh, also recently uh, heard that learning styles were just a mess and a beautiful one that allows the teacher differentiate the tasks, uh, what you said, and uh, have this idea that probably it helps uh, students to learn more effectively. But then if we admit that it's a mess uh, or if we admit that uh, there can be more to it than uh, just these uh, categories and trying to follow them. Then again, we come back to this um, insecurity. If there are no learning styles, how can I as a teacher be sure what to offer my students in order to learn better? Or if there are no learning uh, styles or learning styles are just a mess, uh, how can I plan a lesson more effectively then? If I cannot um, offer a specific type of um, tasks to my students, what uh, am I to propose? How can I be an effective teacher then? What should I bring into the classroom if I cannot find the uh, comfort, the security in any kind of categorizing? This is what scares many teachers, and this is what soothes me personally very much because, well, I don't need to diagnose the students. It makes it easier, but then it's also more honest not to categorize, not to diagnose, but just to see all the students and every student individually and um, come open and be present with them, try to help them as much as I can to the utmost of my possibilities without prepared uh, tasks that make it easier for me as a teacher and uh, hopefully more effective for students. But then if it's not said that it really works, yeah, back to this difference. You either feel uh, not protected as a teacher or you come to this uh, insecure environment and are ready to be present there and are ready to tackle the difficulties that uh, will arise or might arise. And then what uh, you said about uh, students with uh, autistic spectrum disorders, for example, well, admit that uh, there should be a special needs uh, teacher who would help a language teacher or a math teacher or whatever other subject teacher. Just don't try as a teacher to, to do everything. Don't try as a teacher to diagnose everyone. It's the uh, first thing, very hard or even impossible if you did not study that. Or... Okay, choose the path to get to know more, go and get another certificate and special needs. Maybe if you have this uh, desire to work individually without a special needs uh, help teacher, assistant teacher in a classroom, the um, learning styles uh, as they are, as they might be, if they're not a myth, uh, are a comforting thing. We can use them. If they are a myth, uh, we're naked and we need to invent uh, something else then to protect ourselves and our students uh, 
in uh, a learning environment or to create a learning environment that would be safe uh, without uh, categorizing and diagnosing. So what you are saying, correct me if I got you on that, we come to the point of diversity and inclusion here as a main principle. So yes, there is diversity. Yes, we are different. If we're talking about a team or a class or a group or even individual students of one teacher, do you have their own strengths in learning or their own challenges? And uh, there is a spectrum, but also to include different ways, different styles to listen, to see what works best, what where some help is needed. It's always about being incorporative and being inclusive in that. Including different ways, knowing the difference and including something for everybody to, to benefit. Then in language uh, teaching and learning, we uh, are on the safe side, actually, because we've got these uh, four uh, skills and activities and uh, just language activities that uh, any student and every student uh, should master. Yeah, reading, speaking, writing, listening. All of these belong to or would belong to different learning styles, but Do we prefer any of these? No, we don't, because a student should master all of them to the maximum extent one can. Yeah, but maybe more uh, attention is needed in this case uh, to to master the uh, balanced level. By the way, I actually remember the teachers, I don't know, 20 years ago who were scared of speaking exercises or who were speaking of using technology like video cassette recorder player to play some recordings to the uh, students. I remember there were people who were really scared of doing intercultural cases because they didn't see the value in that. I really hope that we do evolve and we learn from our mistakes and from from something that we learned from our colleagues as well. Do you know what was the first audio tape we used back at university as I was a student? It was China English. It was an audio course that our teachers used uh, as um, as audio input for us. But basically, this was um, a set of audio recommendations for Chinese um, entrepreneurs who are learning English for working in the U.S. And there were loads of uh, intercultural cases, like what happens if... Uh, you're invited and you want to say no. As a Chinese student or entrepreneur, you think uh, they will invite twice or three times. They will not. As Americans, they don't do that in their culture. It's not like if they hear no, it's a no. And uh, so it was in pure English 
very um, beautifully said from the point of view of phonetics and uh, phrasing, intonations, all these uh, sorts of things. But basically the course already included these intercultural things uh, with uh, cases, uh, various situations, what to do, how to behave, how not to behave and why. So I recall it with, as a very pleasant memory as a student. I still remember VOA Special English Economics Report. This is something that we both used for our international economics students 10 years ago or something for making their audio skills to flourish and to master them. I think they still can wake up in the midnight and say that. If you listen to us and you still remember what is VOA special English economics report, please hit our heart and subscribe. When we're talking about learning and lifelong learning, is this something that we're trying to practice as well? Can you say that I'm good at learning or I'm proficient at learning? Or I can perfectly learn whatever I need to learn. Okay, I would put it so I am uh, advanced in learning what uh, I am curious about. Advanced, I don't say proficient. There is a never-ending process, I think, on this scale. You can always go further. But yes, I am advanced uh, in learning what I'm curious about, and I'm very poor at learning something that does not interest me. But I think it's just natural. What about you? Where are you on this scale? It's really interesting that you're using the scale that we used uh, uh, in our discussion a couple of the episodes ago on measuring soft skills and as uh, learnability as or can be consider it as a skill, you immediately have already started describing your levels of learnability skill as advanced, not proficient yet. It's really nice to to see the ideas growing on. Uh, where I am there, um, yeah, as I mentioned that I, I, I consider myself a professional learner, but then I understand that the way I learn now can be um, a little bit painful <laughs> to the people that I, I'm learning with. And it might be a very different thing when I'm learning individually and when I'm learning in a group. I'm doing right now two certification courses and I understand that my curiosity and my engagement and being truly inside the topic and trying to understand, trying to challenge all the ideas, trying to challenge the premises by which the assumptions are made. It's not enough to present a model of something to me and say, oh, it works, or it will, works beautifully. So I'm trying to learn how it works, to challenge it in the most ways. And this is something that I learned over the last couple of weeks that the way I'm learning for myself might not be the most pleasant thing in the room in the group 
And uh, this is important learning about it. So I might, I might be too challenging or I might be too inquiring or too curious or too checking out immediately or, you know, just when something was mentioned, I will just click on, and, you know, Google meanwhile and just throw the links or that's the way I learn. Do you find this an efficient way for you to learn? Not talking about how other people in the group learn. I'm trying to be as efficient as possible because I already allocated time for this learning and I want to use it most effectively because I just don't have any other time to do the work twice or three times or come back to it or you know, just revise meanwhile. And I think that constant acquiring, constant challenging the thoughts makes me find those cause and reason connections, which might be not so obvious. So therefore, I believe that I'm trying to, I would call it dig deeper, but also to find the ways that I can incorporate the knowledge, make it my learning outcome rather than information that I received. I would just add here that uh, while you are learning in the best uh, possible way for you and take the utmost of uh, the course, then it's the teacher's task to make it work in the way that all the other participants also get the most if they want to. Yeah, so then the teacher is in that role of a facilitator for the best possible learning for all the participants of the group. And so for you, it would be uh, Googling something meanwhile and sending out links and uh, checking out information, asking questions and so on. For others, it would be just getting information because it's the best uh, way of learning for them. For anyone else, it would be an argument, a dialogue, uh, interaction and so on. And then the teacher gets into this uh, very challenging role of a facilitator making sure that everybody learns in their best way possible. Yeah, uh, and that might be a challenge when it is a teacher training course. When, But still, I, I do believe that um, the, the facilitators are doing a fabulous job because it's quite a challenge, you know, to have 12 teachers who want to study something and who are curious about that and who want to progress somewhere, but also knowing what it takes to progress, what it takes to really understand and who have their own pattern. So this is what, what the questions that I ask myself when I'm learning. Do I see the patterns between the ideas and concepts that are being discussed or being presented. Do I see all the concepts there or something is missing or uh, 
the patterns remind me of something and I can make the associations, parallels, comparisons with something that I already know. I'm trying to brush up the part of the knowledge that I already incorporated in my head through my previous years of learning, decades of learning. I'm trying to see where this new learning outcome fits most. Where does it build up? Something that's already there, where something needs a little brushing up before connecting the dots. And uh, yeah, so I'm trying to think which steps do I need to take to, to make this knowledge internalized and what kind of resources, extra resources, references may help strengthen that. What should I do next? So I'm just thinking at every moment of the time where it leads me. What does it change? What more do I need to read? What else do I need to challenge the concept or the strategy or the tactics or the idea or the model or whatever it is? Do you have the same questions when when you're learning? Not at all. As I was listening to you, I got myself thinking, wow, that sounds like a very rational learner taking steps in order to get to the next level. So that means understanding what the next level is, uh, being aware of uh, all the steps one must take. And uh, as I said earlier, because I'm uh, driven by curiosity, I just follow my curiosity every other step. And uh, now I don't ask myself uh, these questions, at least all the time. I do ask myself what uh, the best uh, way of learning for me is when I start learning something. And uh, then if something seems not to work, I take up something else. At least consciously, I don't ask myself these questions. Let's put it so. Maybe subconsciously it works somehow like that, or maybe just because I've got uh, many years experience of learning and teaching, I do some kind of this uh, reasoning somewhere at the back of my mind, but not consciously, definitely not. Were these just general steps or uh, are these the steps that you personally apply? I'm having this placement test every time that I start something. So a new course, like where, where, where I am in this question, where I am, what do I already know? What is it that I'm missing? Where should I put more attention? Uh, where I should check out? if all the knowledge is relevant and updated. For example, in our uh, neurochemistry or conversation course, we were studying or brushing up, let's say, the uh, responses to whatever situation is happening, like the natural responses, fight, flight, freeze. And suddenly uh, there is the fourth thing which is appease appears to me and to me that was a new thing that I, I, I haven't seen 
what does that word mean at all? Well, what kind of the concept is behind he, this in this connotation? And they try to see, try to ask, so what do you actually mean by this? What are the references here? And then I Googled, uh, Google scholared it and try to understand that there are different ways of, uh, not only of reaction to something that is scary, right? So you have either cortisol or excitocin or like any other hormone that your body releases and you have a natural reaction to a situation, right? So what, what you're going to do? Like defend yourself or protect or, you know, just trying to freeze and to get numb. And here comes the number four, which I haven't heard. Of. So uh, what I did, I tried to understand if this is a new piece of knowledge. Is this something that was not classified or categorized before? So I understand that there is a, a point which doesn't stick to, to my previous knowledge. And um, I went through maybe eight, ten uh, academic papers, and uh, I found out that there is this appease moment, but it's not an immediate reaction, just like the first four. It's just um, when the uh, natural reaction, the hormone peak is released and then like your body, your, your blood dissolved the cortisol to a level when you feel stabilized already. So then you try to make a next decision. What kind of tactics are you going to use according to the strategy that your body found uh, uh, natural in this in the situation and the piece means like trying to find the solution in a diplomatic way let's say yeah trying to make peace with uh whatever is happening which is kind of was a new way of dealing with situation for me which i never thought of an immediate reaction yeah i tried to immediately understand what how much do i know is this a new knowledge is this a proven knowledge is there legitimate research in this so i try to wait and see and um, therefore I, I found the articles and now i understand that well i can make it conclusion out of this learning that that my further reactions would be most probably including this new knowledge and then I try to see where does it lead me what kind of the more information can I read how does it change what I know about the world uh, what is the pattern so uh, I think it was last week so the whole week I was thinking about it watching films, for example, or reading books, I'm trying to see, oh, was this the situation when the person reacted as the, you know, this appease moment? And for me, it was like, oh, no, that, that, that was like being numb. And so this is free. So I'm just keep on analyzing all my previous, ex well, not all, but some of the previous uh, experience that I had to understand how does this new piece of knowledge fit into the new reality.
not? Why are you laughing? I'm laughing because I'm doing the same things with um, uh, German adjective declinations. <laughs> Whatever you learn, if you learn proficiently, you, you do the same thing. You see what... Uh, I'll just put it in a very uh, simple way because it, it's funny. That's why I'm laughing, actually, because I think that uh, I learned that in uh, A2 level. Yeah? That corresponds more or less to what you say. I think I know these reactions. And then something new appears. Okay, I think I learned that in A2, which I actually skipped, as always. But it belongs to A2. So uh, when I was in B1, I believe uh, this knowledge was actualized. Like, attention, there are cases, there are declinations, there are endings. All right, good. And then in C1, you see another phrase which uh, contains an article, an adjective, and a noun. I look at a phrase, uh, again, going through all those things. Ah, aha. It's dear because it's, um, for example, dative case, and then the adjective has got the ending and aha, uh, uh -huh, for the same reason, all right. And then I see the uh, noun and realize that, well, it's feminine. Now I will remember that or try to, or hope I will. And it's every time again and again uh, going through the same cycle or <laughs> running the same circle, you recognize something in the reality, be it language or neuroscience or whatever new knowledge you get, you recognize something that you already know, then there is something new that doesn't fit, then you try to understand how it works or what you lack, yeah, that's what you're saying. And um, I just think we do speak the same language now. <laughs> and uh, still we speak different languages when we describe what uh, we do while learning, because what you described to me sounds rational and I think I don't do that. But suddenly I realize I do, but uh, I explain it to myself. So like my narrative is that uh, I get oriented, like what's up? And it's the first uh, orientation instinct. I react instinctively, what's up, what's new, and then have to restructure all my, I don't know, thinking, knowledge, whatever, taking into consideration what's up and what's new. Murin, this is called flexibility how flexible your neuron connections are and how they are aligned and ready to, to reconnect. And that's another thing, because talking about, again, the narrative that we use to explain what's going on when we learn, I think what you mentioned um, concerning storing knowledge yeah and then uh, brushing up and seeing what's missing and so on belongs to a bit to a pre-neuroscience narrative that uh, most of us use yeah there are boxes or drawers inside our brain or memory that we kind of refresh brush up and reorganize but then you say that uh, novel 
neural narrative uh, is actualized, then we can talk about neuroplasticity and uh, other kind of uh, things that are proven to be right, let's say, on a modern level of uh, science development. <laughs> let's live and see what uh, the future science development brings to us. And Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy actually the uh, post that you shared on uh, women in neuroscience. Uh, the curated content by Inna. I do welcome and I do follow your curated content uh, pics. Which, uh, as kindly YouTube pr produced, uh, the next uh, video was the uh, Cambridge, I think it was Cambridge, professor of neuroscience uh, who has his own lab and his, I don't know, 10, 12, PhD students who are doing research on the same kind of big topic, but everybody's doing their own part. A one hour and 20 minutes of deep diving into the cases, examples, which are connected in a such a beautiful narrative of the professor presenting this lecture through what they, what they do with each uh, of the research and how does it build up the whole picture and how every puzzle uh, comes up and this amazing feeling of finding something new or formulating something that we already knew but in a new way or somehow proven way or mathematically correct you know bell curve or something this is fascinating. I don't know. The, the way we're living in the uh, modern scientific world where like no boundaries are there, even with the COVID uh, people, the scientists, they continue working no matter what. Of course, those who need the laboratories, they, they might lack, sadly, the uh, interconnectedness of the world as we knew. And let's hope it's going to refresh after the end of the story. But overall, it is so exciting how much more interconnection and collaboration has established over the last year, because even the scientists, pun intended, finally found the benefits of online communication collaboration you know visiting the conferences that you would never visit because of the distance or i don't know how much it should should be paid yeah the, the, the conferences that's another topic or the publications and i can already see how many new associations appeared new journals new conferences I, I really love the way we, we are trying to progress society as a scientific society and as a learning about the way we learn, the way we teach, and the way we live. So live and learn. And learn to live. curious about what we discuss next, please subscribe to Live and Learn podcast and join our community on social networks. Live and Learn!